Section 21 of The Mystery of the Ocean Star This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Patrick Wallace The Mystery of the Ocean Star by W. Clark Russell Section 21 That There Little Tommy Well, all that I can say is, Here's luck, I'm sure, exclaimed my nautical friend, directing his little eyes into an eager squint at the froth that crowned the pot he held in his hand. He then drank and proceeded as follows. As I was saying, there was a gent of the name of Parkinson, a regular seaside visitor, a rich man, as I allow, for he always brought two servants with him from London, and his wife and daughters went dressed up to the knocker whilst their lodgings was a matter of some ten guineas a week. Tied a bit of money, eh, sir? Only think, all that gold for the use of a roof and a bed and what the calls of you. Though I'd be glad to look out of my back windows with nothing better in sight than an old clothesline and three or four hens for a quarter of that sum paid regular every week. Well, as I was a-saying, Mr. Parkinson, he comes one day down to the beach and calling me up to him, he says, after a sort of look round, Jimmy, he says, I've got a scheme in my head, which I want you to carry out for me. You was a blue salt water sailor, he says, for years, which is more than most of your mates has got to boast of, and I reckon that you're the right man to execute the job I wants to see put into action. You know my boy Tommy, he says. I ought to, I answers. He's asked me questions enough concerning the sea life to make me know him if he talked inside a sack of taters. Aye, says Mr. Parkinson. That's just it, Jimmy, he says. Is this boy Tommy crazy to be off to sea? Of course he don't know why he wants to go. He ain't got no true notions of the life whatever. He's been a-laying out of his pocket money in tales about pirates and treasures in islands and the likes of such longshore swash. And what with them romantic notions and the craving after the gilt buttons with which they coax his poor little chaps into persuading their fathers to put down good money for the privilege of their sons doing all the dirty work that is to be done at sea, there's nothing that'll appease him but going. Between you and me and the bedpost, Jimmy, I don't mean that he should go. But how to stop him? He's not wanting in spirit, and it's just the sort of lad for to run away and make his mother look twice as old as she is with worry. Now, he says, there's no doubt, he says, says he, that if I was to send him for a voyage in a collier or some vessel making a short coasting trip, I might manage to sicken him out of the life. But then he's but a little chap, Jimmy, and not fit for such sufferings as he'd have to endure if I was to start him on an experimental cruise. If it was the Royal Navy, he says, says he, I don't know that I should so much object to his being a sailor. But this here little Tommy, he says, won't listen to the Royal Navy. He's got it into his head that there's no seamanship to be learnt aboard them ironclads, and he says nothing will satisfy him but a sailing ship, where there's plenty of climbing to be done, and where the boys are allowed to steer. Wessels which go round the world and visit all sorts of countries. For you see, Jimmy, he says, it's all romance on the part of this here little Tommy, and arter his uniform and the chance of coming home with a shipload of treasure, not to save his taking command of a pirate when he sarved his owners twelve months, say, out of these here things, he says, says he, in that there little Tommy's mind come coconuts, with a monkey behind, and perhaps a parakeet to follow. 
He is but eleven years old, Jimmy, he says, and what should such a little chap as that know about the ocean life? Aye, says I, what indeed? Well, he says, tell you now what my scheme is. Instead of sending little Tommy to sea to find out for himself, suppose we keep him ashore, and give him all the hardships of the calling we can manage to heap upon him without doing him any hurt. I felt my eyes brighten, for I saw the gent's notion right away, and reckoned it an A1 copper bottom fancy. You've got a house of your own, Jim, he says. I have, sir, says I. Well now, says he, suppose you take charge of this here little Tommy, and put him through his training, undertaking not to hurt him. Introduce all the shipboard discipline that's manageable in a house. Aye, aye, sir, says I, grinning, I see. Don't give him nothing but shipboard whittles to eat, and perhaps you'll contrive that they ain't of the best at that. See that the pea soup is like what sailors get in the forecastle. Better look out for some mouldy biscuit, too, and if there ain't no worms in it, make pretend that there is. Likewise provide that the water ain't over-sweet. Contrive, if you can, to give it a sort of bunghole flavour. You know what I mean. And now, says he, have I said enough? Aye, sir, says I on the broad grin. If he ain't cured, it won't be because the physical be stinted. Right, says he. His mother's willing. Go to work. I know ye of old, Jimmy. It's not everybody as I'd trust my boy to. And so saying, he slips ten pound into my hand, whilst he gives me certain instructions when to call for the boy and the like. Well, twas a first-class job for me, more of my line than boatin', with a laugh to be got out of it too. So I just tells my wife what to expect, her and me living alone. And then, after laying out a pound or two in certain articles proper for this here doctor in business, I tips one of our chaps down on the beach to get me certain provisions from the vessels which were lying off. T'was to be done by bribery and other corruptions. And afore noon next day, I had enough ship's grub in my house to last four such littlums as this here Tommy a fortnight and perhaps three weeks, which was much longer than I reckoned the operation would take. I took care that the fodder should be got out of the homeward bounders. There was no chance of getting such provisions ashore. The biscuits had come in new and very good eating, and the joke had been a bit too expensive had I laid in the pork and beef that I required in the quantity it sold at, I mean in casks and tierces. No, I got all that I wanted through my mates, and at a trifling cost too, out of vessels brought up after middling long passages. And a pretty collection it was, enough to make me thank the Lord I'd knocked off the calling. Well, all being ready, including of a little hammock and a suit of oilskins, the smallest that was to be got, and the legs cut down at that, along with the boy's sou'wester, I went up to the gentleman's house and asked it for little Master Tommy. I was showed in. Mr. and Mrs. Parkinson come to me first, and the missus looked like crying, and was constantly interrupting her husband to beg me to be kind to her boy, to take care that he didn't catch cold under my treatment, and to give him plenty to eat, though she wasn't going to say nothing against the coarseness of the whittles I might provide. I wouldn't argue, for I'd catch Mr. Parkinson a-vinking at me, which was the same as saying, "'Tis a mother that's speaking to you, Jimmy. Stow your objections, my lad. It's all right.' Then little Tommy was sent for, and in he comes, full of excitement. He had fair hair, and was a pretty little lad, 
a bit thin perhaps, dressed out in knickerbockers with a sort of sauciness about him, such as comes to boys who want to make themselves believe they're older than they are, and who think cockiness another name for manliness. Only to the day I see a bit of a chap of this kind smoking a cigarette, and Lord, didn't these here fingers tingle with the want to spank him. Well, sir, says I to this here young Tommy, so you're the gent, sir, says I, as is going to be a sailor. Aye, says he, Jim, for his father called me Jim and so did he. Yes, there's nothing else fit for a man but the sea. All right, Master Tommy, I says, says I, we'll now tarm to and take a spell of sailor rising. Play at sailor, you see, without having to run any risks of going ashore, or keeping the pumps out at day and night, or getting stranded and lashing ourselves high aloft in the freezing wet. And here I glances at his ma, who tossed her hands and rolled her eyes up to the ceiling. Got your bundle ready, Tommy, says I. It'll be sent, says the father. No, sir, I says, says I, excuse me, I says. A true sailor always carries his own kit along with him. So with that, a bag containing Master Tommy's nightshirt and a hairbrush and the like was brought. It being arranged that what he wanted in other ways was to be called for. Tommy had never been to my house afore, and though he'd talked pretty cockily all the way to it, yet when we arrived he fell silent and looked uncomfortable. He'd been used to tall rooms and good furniture, you see, and couldn't make nothing of a parlour that opened right on into a street, with a ceiling which a cheer would almost bring his head again. That there cottage of mine was a hundred and fifty year old, and what with the sinking of the floors like the slope of a ship's deck in a breeze of wind, and the smell of the old timber, and the wooden partitions like cabin bulkheads with beams across the ceiling, and a dark up-and-down staircase. Tis as good an imitation of a ship's forksoke to fit the fancy of such a boy as that there little Tommy as his dad could have struck upon. However, he grew more manly presently, and asked it to see his bedroom. No bedrooms aboard ship, young'un, says I roughly. We don't go to bed at sea. We turns in. Come you along with me, I says, says I talking hoarsely and putting on the airs of a severe bosun. And with that I led him upstairs into a room where there was no carpet, nothing but a sea chest which I borrowed, and a hammock swinging from the ceiling. There, says I, here's where you spend your watch below. That's your bed, you see, says I, and that'll be your chair and your table, I says, pointing to the chest. For that's how sailors eat and sleep at sea, I says, and there ain't no manliness to equal the calling. I thought he'd pipe his eye as he looked round but he bit his little lip after a stare at the hammock and said nothing. Now then, says I violently, off with your coat and boots, my lad, whip off them stockings, we've got a wash-down job before us. He did as he was told, but was a bit long in doing of it, on which I thundered at him, telling him that if he was at sea he'd be rope-sanded for not bearing a hand. Do it hurt, he says. Aye, more than hurt, says I, it stings. Quick now, or I shall have to let you know what it's like. Well, I took him downstairs into the kitchen, and after telling my missus to clear out, I put a scrubbing brush into his hands and took a bucket of water and set him a-scrubbing. It went agin the grind, sir, to see the little blue-eyed, thin-legged chap heaving away with a brush that was nigh twice as tall as he, but I says to myself, he's ashore anyhow, tis but a play lesson, his mother's within hail of him, and since I'm to be his schoolmaster, I must do my duty. Well, I splashed the water about, calling out to him to scrub smartly all in proper sea fashion, 
and when the job was over we made it eight bells and went to dinner. My old woman had cooked him some ship's pea soup and pork, and making the soup under my directions as they make it at sea. Our own dinner was a piece of roast mutton with greens and taters, specially provided for the tantalisation of the smell. I was for roast pork, but my missus says that roast mutton would show better and smell more savoury again the whittles a boy was to have, and so I consented. He wouldn't eat. Not seasick, are you? says I. I don't like it, he says. Can't I go home and get my dinner, he says. Go home, I says. Why, says I, don't you know that you're in the middle of the ocean? A sailor's home is his forecastle. When you get to shore, my lad, you shall have roast mutton and vegetables, says I, smacking my lips with a sort of look of ain't it good in my eyes as I stared at the mutton. But whilst you're at sea, you must eat the ship's allowance. So fall to, do you hear? But I couldn't wonder it is not eaten. We put some wood to soak in the fresh water we gave him to drink, and the flavour lay strong in his pannikin. The pork was mainly brine, and what was over you might fairly call smell. The biscuit was broken, soft and honeycomb, and I told him to beat it on the table afore putting it into his mouth, that if there was worms in it they might drop out. The soup was a thin, yaller, greasy liquor. The peas in it was like the shingle off the beach. Is this the sort of food they gives to sailors, says he? Yes, says I, and what choice of eating could a fellow with the feelings of a man ask for? Tain't all soup and pork. There's a beautiful variety a-going at sea. Tomorrow will be salt, beef and duff, and the day after a lovely mess what's known amongst seafaring men as soap and bullion. Why, you ain't made no dinner at all, Master Tommy. No, and I don't want none, says he recoiling like from the steam of the pork, small blame to him. The missus and I are currant dumplings for puddin', and the poor little chap eyed em with a starving gaze. The missus looked at me, but I steeled my heart. No, I says to myself, if this here physics to do the little and good, it mustn't be sweetened. Well, that afternoon I put him to a number of small jobs. There was a yard at the back of our cottage, and I stretched a rope along it and made him tar it. Regularly obliged him to shove his little white hand into a tar bucket. There's all hands on deck, you know, says I, aboard this vessel, from eight bells in the morning, down to eight bells in the afternoon watch. So you must keep all on at it. And when his tarring was done, I made him clean a brass binnacle hood that I borrowed, and then I put him to sandpaper in an oar and so on till it come time for tea, or supper, as I called it to this here Tommy. Well, his supper, which I told him to eat hearty of, as there would be nothing more to follow, consisted of ship's tea that made a black liquor in which the missus left all the stalks and roots, sweetened with a dose of foot sugar, along with the biscuit that had been served to him at dinner. I told him as he'd not eaten his allowance of pork, he might have it for his supper, but he answered that the smell of it made him feel ill. He drank a little of the tea, making ugly faces, and now, being sharp-set, contrived to swallow a few bits of ship's bread, but the way in which he watched the brown bread and butter and the cups and coffee which me and the missus was making our tea of was downright affecting. Now you see, says I, how well looked out as sailors are when they goes to sea in the matter of provisions. Ain't it a manly calling just? My eye, it's growed almost too manly for Englishmen, 
and the foreigners fast squeezing of us all out. So, Master Tommy, art your father's paid for the privilege of your eating such lovely food as I put afore you today, and art of your gone near to break your heart with the work they'll put upon you without paying you the worth of a farden's worth of silver spoons for it, then, when your time's out, they'll kick you ashore, that you may make way for the blooming foreigners who'll be glad to take your place for half the money ye ask. Oh, but ain't it a manly life, though, my eye? Well, I told him he might turn in when it came eight o'clock. I showed him how to get into his hammock, but made him keep on his knickerbockers. For, says I, it looks dirty weather, and it may be all hands presently. He asked for sheets. Poor, says, says I, there ain't no sheets at sea. Ain't you got a good blanket up there? That's all the sheets a sailor wants. Well, I left him, and waited till I thought he was fast asleep, and then, running into his room, it being about half-past ten o'clock at night, I blew an old whistle that was mine when I was boatswain's mate, stamping heavily with both feet whilst I piped, and then roared out the top of my voice, All arms, reef topsails, bear a hand, me livelies, afore she turns turtle. And with that I thumped at the hammock. What am I to do? sings out the poor little chap. Tumble up, tumble up, I yells out. There's a whole gale of wind busted upon us. Well, he gets up, and I shan't forget the sight of his little legs over the edge of the hammock. I bawl into him to bear a hand all the time, helping him without appearing to do so by bringing his shoes to him, and then making him wrap himself up in his oilskins, and then pretending to be in a fearful hurry, as though he was in a situation of awful danger, I rushes him out into the back yard. As luck would have it, it was really blowing fresh, but not cold, with a tease and drizzle of rain in squalls. There, says I, we'll imagine you've been aloft, and now your watch on deck's come round, and you ain't to go to bed again for four hours. So turn to, my lively, and pace this here deck to keep yourself warm, and when my watch comes round, I'll relieve ye. And with that I left him. Well, sir, said my nautical friend as he finished his beer, it would take me all day long to tell you how I handled that there little Tommy. Tis on a Tuesday that I fetched him, and he hung out till Friday, and then coming home from a heron, I asked if my missus where the boy was, and she said he was a-missin'. I sat down and laughed, knowing how it was, for I'd seen it in his face ever since Wednesday, when the duff came up for his dinner, along with a bit of salt horse the old woman had boiled for him. And sure enough, two hours afterwards comes Mr. Parkinson a-smiling all down his back. Jimmy, says he, I'll allow you've done it this time, my boy. Little Tommy's come home, and has been crying like a baby to his mother, and says that he don't see no more manliness left in the sea, and would rather be a clown or an engine driver than a admiral. And so, said I to my nautical friend, the lad was really cured, effectually cured of his desire to be a sailor. He looked at me with a grin. So much cured, sir, he answered that it was only the day before yesterday that he came up to me as I was standing on the beach, and after making himself be known, for he was growed so and so coloured with the sun that I should never recognise him, he says to me, let me see, Jimmy. It's four year ago now, I think, since I was aboard your cottage. It wasn't fair, Jim. The lies better know your damn messes and backyard. I'm just home from Frisco, and tell you what, Jim, the life may be as hard as you told me it was, and perhaps harder. But I ain't disappointed in the manliness of it, and in spite of its puddings and its soap and bullion, 
I'd rather be a sailor than a boatman. Here, you old villain, he says, giving me five shillings. Go and drink my health, he says, says he, and wish my ship a speedy voyage, for I'm bound away to New Zealand in three weeks, and I'll tell you more about it when I comes home next time. Cure him, continued my nautical friend with a face of disgust. No, by the piper, and who wanted to? Cure an English lad of his taste for the sea? It'll be good night to Britannia, as is the pride of the ocean, when that's to be done, sir. End of section twenty one. Recording by Patrick Wallace, London.